If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the Wolfson History Prize, which has been awarded to standout history books since 1972. And as part of the celebrations, we've teamed up with the Wolfson Foundation to bring you some fascinating panel discussions on history's biggest topics. Today's panel focuses on the history of religion, and its chair, who introduced the discussion and the panellists, is Professor Dermot McCulloch. The Wolfson Prize is a prize for the best historical writing by writers in the UK, and it's been going now for 50 years. And during that time, religion... The subject of religion has been a major part of what the history judges have honoured over the years. The very first book to win the Wolfson History Prize was about religion. It was the famous Religion and the Decline of Magic by Keith Thomas. Over the years, many other books have been winners when the subject has been religion. I name, for instance, a book by one of our panel here today, Heretics and Believers, which won the prize in 2018, Peter Marshall's book. Uh, We've had uh, a book on Reformation, which I wrote myself. And this year, you can say that at least two of the six shortlisted books were absolutely focused on religion. One couldn't be more focused. It was God and Anatomy by Francesca Stavrokopoulou. Besides that, we had Nicholas Orme going to church in medieval England. You see, it's religion. And the same thing goes back over the years. So that's a very good reason for us to be talking about religion today. It's a paradox, perhaps, because in this country, religion seems to be in decline. At least going to a place of religion seems to be in decline. So history is going to comment on that, but it may also point to the fact that in the world at large, religion is far from dead. It is extraordinarily lively in all its forms. To discuss all this, uh, we have myself as chairman, Dermot McCulloch, uh, Emeritus Professor of the History of the Church in Oxford University, Emeritus, in other words, I've retired, and I'm a Wolfson Prize judge. Besides that, we have Carol Hillenbrand, who is also a Wolfson Prize judge and Professor Emerita of Islamic History in the University of Edinburgh. We have Peter Marshall, who won the Wolfson History Prize in 2018, Professor of History in the University of Warwick. And we have Chakravarti Ramprasad, Distinguished Professor of Comparative Religion and Philosophy in the University of Lancaster. So I'll be stepping back and letting these three experts do most of the talking, but I will start them off with a question, uh, a very broad question, which I think I'll start throwing at Peter Marshall in the first place. Uh, And this is, how has the writing of history about religion changed in the last 50 years? Thanks, Dermot. Well, that's a very interesting question. It would take a long time to answer fully, I think. I mean, one thing that occurs to me straight away, which is good news for all of us on this panel, I guess, 
is that the history of religion is back and has become central to our understanding of the past in a way that perhaps would have surprised scholars in the decades just after the Second World War, uh, when in the West, at least, or certainly in Western Europe, uh, there was a sense that religion was being consigned pretty firmly to the past, and religious history looked a rather fuddy-duddy sort of subject. And if religion was important at all, it was... um, as I guess what Marxist historians might have called a kind of superstructure, you know, a frothy topping um, above more fundamental questions uh, around um, social, political, economic power. And that has changed dramatically, I think. I would like to say that it doesn't have much to do with 9-11, but I, I, I fear it, it does uh, for people in the West who weren't paying attention before that point in the last 20 years. It's become very clear, as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, that um, uh, religion is far from dead or moribund uh, across the wider world once we you know, look over our own garden fence uh, in, in Western Europe. Um, and that perhaps religion needs to be taken seriously on its own terms. Religious belief is not necessarily something that we can simply translate into concepts that the more secular among us uh, find easier to to understand. Thanks, Peter. Uh, Ram, could I ask you to follow up on that? Uh, Yes, I, I think to a large extent, the question itself relies on what the distinction between the secular and the religious is, and that arises from a very particular uh, history of the concept of religion in the academy, perhaps especially in the 20th century. So if you look at, say, India, after independence, history writing was assiduously committed to this rigorous distinction between what was declared religious and what was thought to be secular. But To a large extent, from perhaps the 1960s, perhaps more in uh, the American uh, universities, uh, later on in Britain as well, a certain amount of pressure was put on what seemed like an artificial distinction born out of a very particular history of Western modernity. So if you look at um, India and the absolute rioters, Uh, pluralism of its religious traditions, the conceptual question of even what Hinduism is and how many religions might constitute that, the constant interaction over the past thousand years between uh, Islam and the other Indic traditions, when you look at how um, the subcontinent is a home to almost all the major religious traditions in the world, you look at literature, you look at the way polities were formed, you look at the interactions with uh, British colonialism and the independence movement later on. In every place, it seemed like when we were talking about the the structures of society, when we're thinking about culture, we think of literary outputs, we think about rethinking the past, what was artificially hived off as religion did not seem to be able to stay away. So I think in the last 50, 60 years, uh, at least in Western scholarship, there has been a lot of pressure put on thinking that religion should be considered out with the disciplinary domains of history. Now, that's become very interesting, important, urgent with uh, the rise of certain forms of Islamist thinking in Pakistan and Bangladesh, with the rise of Hindu nationalism in India, with the clashes during the Sri Lankan civil war of 
Buddhist Sinhala nationalism in Sri Lanka. So all over the subcontinent, religion was consciously brought into uh, political calculation through, interestingly enough, a very modern conception of religion as having a particular kind of role, either antagonistic to or integral to the modern nation state. So that's brought even greater urgency, an urgency to do with um, not only academic ideas, but the very transformation of society to the connection between the category of religion and the category of history. Thanks. That's very helpful. Carol, can I bring you in now on that same question? I would like to answer this question by discussing the work of recent historians on the religion of Islam. A good example is how the Arab conquests of 632 to 732 have been reinterpreted. By 732, the Muslim armies were in France, on the Indus, and on the borders of China. The traditional view was that this seismic phenomenon was inspired by religion. But was it? The irreversible desiccation of the fertile lands of Yemen pushed large populations in Arabia northwards by a domino effect into Syria and Iraq. Centuries of warfare between the Romans and the Persians had left both these empires exhausted and they were unable to counter the Arab advance. So economic and political factors were also at play. The Arab conquests involved factors other than religion. Here's another test case, this time based on my own research. Up to about 1950, the Crusades were seen in the West overwhelmingly from the Western European point of view. The other side was virtually ignored. In 1999, I published a long book based on medieval primary sources in Arabic, which told a very different story. That book has proved a wake-up call to Western historians, encouraging them to investigate hitherto unexplored approaches to these religious wars, which were also early examples of European colonialism. Very helpful. And straight away from all these three contributions, we see how political the subject of religion is. Uh, over at least 1,500 years, you, you, uh, as we tell our stories, we are rewriting the present, aren't we? Uh, do you think that uh, our efforts are welcome to those in politics? Ram, what, what, what uh, might you think about that? I, I just wanted to say, uh, when we think of those in politics, maybe those who might be in politics in 20 years' time, um, I teach about the relationship between concept of holy war and just war in Christian and Islamic traditions. Of course, use uh, Carol's work. And the 20-year-olds who come to these classes over the last maybe half a decade or so are so sensitive, so ready to understand how public discourse, what the media presents, what politicians uh, sort of polemically hold forth on, are really problematic, are based on concepts that were problematic 50 or 60 years ago. And it's been really one of the most sort of optimism-inducing experiences I've had 
teaching uh, about the wider relationship between religion and violence and having these young people, the political leaders of tomorrow, really willing to deconstruct this public discourse. And I really hope there's a seismic shift in uh, how the language of the role of religion um, plays out on the national scene with the coming generation and the kind of systematic work that, you know, Carol did over a generation, I hope is really be beginning to bear fruit with a, with, with, with a new group of students who are willing to challenge the ideologies that have dominated, as Peter was pointing out, since, of course, 9-11. I mean, I think one thing that um, we've got straight away to in our in our conversation, without perhaps being explicitly um, asked to comment on it, is what we mean by by religion. I mean, I think one of the the, the problems is that people hear that word and it brings with it a, a great bundle of assumptions uh, about what it actually means. And one of the things I think we as historians can do is uh, really bring home the extent to which religion is a moving target. It has meant different things at different times, and even within the historical profession itself. I mean, in my my own field in the history of Christianity, I guess um, 50 or 60 years ago, uh, what I do would have been called ecclesiastical history, something rather rather different. I mean, Dermot, you edited for many years a wonderful journal, <laughs> the Journal of Ecclesiastical History. But you know, the work which has been published there and in other places now is a much broader definition of religion, which encompasses uh, culture, ideology, um, lived religion uh, has become something of a buzz phrase among historians. So the, the historiography of previous generations, at least in the history of, of Christianity, it may have been different um, in, in other fields, was one that was focused very much on great men. Uh, they nearly always were men, Thomas Aquinas, Luther, etc., uh, etc. Et uh, it was interested in doctrine. It was interested in institutions. And it was something that, you know, could easily be sort of abstracted and set aside and sometimes indeed, and still is in other parts of Europe, uh, be studied and researched in separate university departments of ecclesiastical history, let's say. So I think this is a rather good thing, although, of course, it's a challenge to all of us, is that religion has become extraordinarily messy. It has bled into all sorts of other areas of investigation where, of course, it, it always was, but it's taken us some time to see that. One of the interesting things is about the presentation of what Christianity means and what Islam means in any sort of monolithic way in um, broadly the West, certainly the media in Western Europe, Britain, America, and so forth. And that's got to do with resolutely ignoring the internal diversity of all these traditions um, and if with Islam, of course, it is absolutely skewing uh, its presentation to narrow, ideological, highly hostile, Islamophobic uh, sort of political trends. With Christianity, it is treating non-Western Christianity really as an other, sometimes uh, as if it were as baffling as the most mysterious of um you know, non-Christian ideas from the rest of the world. Also, it's 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 a way in which I've often struggled to see the way in which the specialization on uh, the history and the doctrines of Christianity in the West don't seem to at all be sensitive 
to, for example, the long history of Christianity in India. I mean, it pretty much goes back to the early century, if not the first century of the Christian era. But certainly when you look at the range of doctrinal commitments, as well as the really subtle and complex interplay between Christianity in India with, uh, the, with, with larger Hindu uh, cultural trends, you have ideas about pluralism, for example, ideas of layered identities, ideas about the relationship between uh, language and liturgy, which simply will not be found if you keep going back to the history of Western Christianity. Not saying that that's not a perfectly legitimate endeavor, but when it comes to thinking about religion globally, sometimes it seems to me that at least the bafflement towards Hinduism or Sikhism or Jainism is a is honest. The assumption of knowledge about world Christianity is, is often really problematic because it doesn't get to the existential worldviews. These are often studied in terms of political framings in, in, in kind of economic context. But in terms of cultural identities, in terms of doctrinal uh, innovations, I think Christianity is as misunderstood in the West as Islam or Hinduism. I think that's that that's absolutely right. And um, you know, as a historian of the Reformation, I think the Reformation has a lot to to answer for here in all sorts of ways. Um, I have the sense that the Reformation fixes in the Western mind that uh, religion is primarily doctrinal or propositional. It's about belief. The 16th, 17th century is is the great age of uh, of catechisms and confessions, and you know what do you believe? Um, and uh, you know people who perhaps now don't practice religion in the West, they still know you know that's what religion is. You know we had all those rather tiresome debates in the um, you know first decade of this century between the so-called new atheists and their opponents about you know whether or not uh, you know religious claims were true and how that could be demonstrated. Um, uh, and of course, belief is 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 important, and it's and it's crucial to identity. But I think, you know, certainly in the wider world, as Ram is saying, but uh, even in Christian Europe, you know, for for most of the time, religion has been about you know doing rather than um, rather than you know believing particular. Um, propositions. I've I've always been rather taken um, with the formula of um, Karen Armstrong, very influential writer on on, on religion. That uh, you know, religion is really it, it's like swimming. It's you know a, a, a practical art. You just have to sort of jump in and and, and get on with it. Uh, and you know, Ram may have a view on on this, and Carol as well. But my suspicion is that a particular view of what religion or a religion is is formed in Europe at the time of the Reformation, uh, largely in Northern Europe out of a sense of Protestant triumph at the Reformation. So a religion is a set of, of true doctrines uh, and of right forms of behaviour supported by a holy book uh, out of which these things can be demonstrated uh, and which is rather obsessed with notions of purity uh, and heresy or deviance. Um, and even in Europe, I mean, the Reformation fails in its attempt to, um, you know, make religion pure and unmessy um, and about um, 
you know, formative uh, types of belief. But I, I sense that kind of template is one that we have inherited uh, as our way of understanding religion. And, you know, perhaps as historians, you know, what we can say to a secular society uh, in, in the West is that, no, there are other ways of thinking about what religion has meant and does mean to people, which are not simply about, I believe this stuff, which is true, and you don't. What I do want to say is actually go back to something I briefly said about the history of the study of um, religion in relation to history in, in post-colonial India, is the extent to which that the high ideology of the Reformation became more or less the house philosophy of academia around the world, so that hist historians in India as much as in you know South Africa or in Taiwan or wherever, um, and I, I would think too in, in parts of the Arab world, that, you know, were had so internalized the for good or for bad the crystallization of the diversity of religious life in terms of having to adhere to a particular sect of doctrinal facts that if they did not see it in that way, then it ceased to become an object of study. And in ceasing to be an object of study, it was sort of with relief that a lot of, for example, Marxist historians turned away and said, we don't need to look at these phenomena anymore. We can look at underlying sociopolitical and economic trends and get at the history of people. Or you could swing the other way and say, perhaps not so much in academy as, for example, in religious leadership, to say religion really is this set of facts, these sets of commitments, and we're going to try and politicize what religious belonging means. So there's this real sort of um, bifurcation into whether you ignore religion because you think it's a bunch of doctrines and you stop studying it, or you go in search of identifying your religious identity through these sort of these doctrinal commitments, these sort of epistemic workings in your brain and try and remold society politically through such commitments. But both of those things turn on, I think, a consequence of the Reformation's conceptualization of religion. It becomes really uh, one of the... Uh, driving machines of European modernity to think of religion in this way, whether you want to manipulate it or whether you want to ignore it. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. You know, historical experts have a role to play and, you know, history is, is too important <laughs> to, be, to be left to people who, who have an agenda. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. 
Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Carol, Peter, Peter and I are both historians of the Reformation, and so we, we've got a, a clash about a sacred book. Now, Islam is very much, if, if not more than Christianity, about a sacred book. But where does it go from there? Where does its history take it, uh, which makes it unlike this sort of Protestant Christian template that historians have tended to impose on it? Well, it, it, it's about history. It's about what happened, and uh, we'll, we need to use our judgment and imagination to interpret uh, such facts in inverted commas as we have. Um, I, I've certainly realised um, that the past has impacted and continues to impact on the present for, for Muslims. They, modern Islam, practised by a billion and a half Muslims worldwide, rests on the foundation of a series of events widely accepted as historical, that's especially true of the early period in the 7th century when Muhammad and his immediate followers lived. They experienced violent schisms. So, for example, the killing of the prophet's grandson Hussein in 680 in a battle between two opposing groups who held different views about who should rule is a hinge of history for modern Shiites. They, unlike Sunni Muslims, believe that members of the Prophet's own family should rule the Islamic community. These ancient disputes between Sunnis and Shiites have traction today. How much of the the world knows about the difference, uh, non-Muslims? How many of them have really gone into this detail? Now, look, for example, at Iran, a Shiite state cannot agree with Sunni Saudi Arabia. That's history that makes sense of this religious conflict. And I could go on about um, religion in the Muslim world, which is um, viewed in a way not paralleled by most of the postmodern West. Just think of Ramadan, the month when Muslims en masse fast, and the pilgrimage to Mecca every year which unites Muslims from right across the globe. These are only two examples of how religion has defined Muslim society for well over a thousand years. Everyday piety, daily prayers, going to the mosque on Friday, charitable giving. That is, if I may use a literary expression, the warp and weft of much of Muslim society even today. One thing that occurs to me that, again, perhaps 
you know, we as um, scholars and historians can say to society uh, about this is that fundamentalism, certainly in Christianity, um, and I guess perhaps in Islam and and Hinduism too, which, uh, you know, is often seen in the West as a kind of bizarre preserved residue um, of a distant past, is actually in some ways a fundamentally modern phenomenon. In, in, in all the, the world religions, um, and that over the wider sweep of history, religious practice has been more diverse, um, more pluralistic, um, much more locally rooted, sometimes not always more tolerant, but, but certainly more complex than the kind of fundamentalists of modernity and their different traditions um, you know, w- would want us all to, to, to believe. And, you know, at the risk of sounding rather pious about this, I think historians of religion, um, you know, can help adherents of faiths and others, you know, recover a, a broader and wider grasp of what religion means, what religion can do, um, than just the self-appointed spokespeople in these traditions might offer us. Yeah, I'd I'd like to intervene, though I'm supposed to be chairman on that one, because within Christianity, uh, there is now an enormous debate about marriage. Uh, And it's not just about whether two people of the same sex can get married. It's about the role of marriage in Christianity. Uh, uh, But I don't hear Christian leaders telling Christians in the West uh, that there was no such thing as a liturgical service of marriage within Christianity until in Eastern Christianity in the 7th century and in Western Christianity as late as the 11th century. Now, if you say that, you didn't go to church to get married? Uh, uh, clergy didn't have anything to do with that. That's injecting a very subversive element into the story which Christians want to tell about themselves now. I mean, I think that's 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 a great way of focusing. It's it's what do people want to say now about what their religion is, and I mean, I'm sure we all ha- keep having these uh, experiences one way or the other, which is how to negotiate the reluctance, at least, and often the outright hostility of people from the traditions we work with when we tell them, you know, this is what the texts actually say. This is what uh, the traditions have done. Where are you getting this legislative perspective on the tradition from and uh you know you're saying but yes it's we want to you know you don't want to feel pious about it but you you could certainly get drawn into um the battle that questions what your role is in being an academic and of course there is a further question of whether in some sense you come out of that tradition or you have that background or not and i'm sure but it's almost as if it's impossible to be committed to the study of religion today and try and explain to the best of our abilities what its history is and you know how it's developed and what its bearings are on today without coming up against what people want to say about themselves now and that fundamental ahistoricity that informs this so-called fundamentalism. Peter, do you want to follow up on that? Gosh, I mean, we're all, we're all sort of in agreement on, on this one, aren't we? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you know, tradition 
uh, is often wielded as a as a political weapon or as a cultural weapon um, by um, uh, you know people with a vested interest in in, in doing so. Uh, and one of the things, of course, you discover you know very early, even as an undergraduate study in history, is that all traditions are invented in one way or another. And you know things that seem like immemorial custom turn out to be things our grandparents did. And you know their grandparents you know did things sort of you know completely differently. You know so so even things that seem Within Christian tradition, I mean, to pick a sort of frivolous example, playing organs in churches, you know, which seems like the the epitome of a of a timeless Christianity, is of course a nineteenth century uh, innovation, um, which would seem very strange to people in in the century uh, b- before that. Um, so I suppose that you know, again, at the, at the risk of of, of being pious, um, you know, w- one doesn't want um, sort of maliciously as a historian to try and you know undermine people's beliefs. <laughs> Um, with uh, with clever clever arguments about how it wasn't it wasn't so, but I think you know we can encourage people um, to um, look at the broader sweep um, and to understand how religious traditions have changed, and of course all religious traditions have changed, and sometimes those changes have been violent and traumatic, and and the Reformation or the Crusades are are perhaps preeminent examples of that. Um, But sometimes change has been managed more successfully, and things that uh, would have seemed unimaginable for adherents of a faith tradition to accept. Actually, within a generation or two, it turns out you know they they can accept them, and that includes, of course, many of the changes we're very familiar with uh, in the West uh, around marriage and sexuality and gender. Though, so of course, some of us may think there's quite a lot of work still to do in those areas. It seems to me that we are rather coming back to our very first question: How has ch- the writing of history changed in the last fifty years? Well, it, it seems to me that in virtually all our cases, uh, as historians of religion, uh, we have been part of a process of stepping back from the religions which we study to to look at them and walk around them in ways which historians might not have done before that. Yeah, I mean, I think with with Hinduism, but perhaps most non-Christian traditions, I think the movement has also been more complicated in the fact that um, colonial scholarship glorified in the distance it placed between the historian and his, normally his, um, subject. Uh, Exactly at the time when it was pretty dramatic, pretty radical to be doing so with Christianity uh, and, and not unthinkingly, as it were, speak from within. So to some extent, one understands why post-colonial subjects want to have the right, as it were, the political right, the historical right, to say, we want to speak from within our traditions. And, uh, you know, in in a sense, almost to say, um, why is it that only we are condemned for the blind spots we have because of our belonging? So that makes the scholars of these traditions uh, they put puts them whether they are from those countries or whether they're of, uh, their origin in those countries and work in the West, where most of the work gets done anyway, puts them in a very odd position because you simultaneously want to say, uh, yes, there is a need to uh, speak without apology 
for uh, the traditions uh, you know, from which one comes, but at the same time to do so with a critical sense of belonging. And oddly enough, what happens is you end up, for example, with me, you know, talking to uh, fellow Indians to say, you do realize that the narrative of the politics of Christianity is challenged by Christian scholars in the West. It's okay to do that. Whereas what happens is you're still in a cycle in which, at least in India or South Asia, Hindu or Muslim scholars are just arriving at the point where they say, we want to be like how Christian scholars were 100 years ago and unapologetically speak from within our tradition. So that these kind of historical you know, layers coexisting at the same time when it comes to what the history of religion should be in terms of the relationship between the scholar and their material. Peter? I think I think that's really interesting, Ram, and I recognise, I, I think, a lot of what you're, you're saying. I mean, um, I have to admit to being a little bit conflicted about this, because certainly in the history of Christianity, um, going back half a century or, or longer, um, you know, this was largely confessional history. I guess you could call it, you know, ancestor worship in a, in a sense. It was tracing the development of particular traditions uh, in order to, you know, privilege them and and protect them. And, and I don't think any of us or many of us lament that that is no longer the, the case. But, but but I'm a little wary of us, you know, swinging to the other end of, of the pendulum dramatically and saying that, you know, actually, religion can only be studied effectively from a, a position of you know total usually secular d- d- detachment and I've got to you know controversially say here and annoy half our listeners that secularism is also a faith commitment which you know needs to be interrogated in in the same way as as, as religion um and the question of course we never want to ask ourselves uh, as historians of religion, is is any of it true? And I'm not proposing to answer that question now. You know, in some ways, I think it's um, a question as historians we can avoid by saying that what we have to do with our historical subjects is respect their beliefs, try and understand them on their own terms, and not necessarily just translate them uh, into concepts that are, you know, uh, easier to understand for us. Um, but the but the question of whether you know, um, historians of religion can be trusted with their own faith traditions, I think is worth asking. Um, from my own point of view, I think they they can, <laughs> but 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 not always. And and sometimes the external critical eye is needed. And and sometimes the eye of empathy and experience um, you know, brings something to that that the external eye doesn't necessarily see. Mm-hmm. Carol. Well, I feel that the um, reading of the interactions and relationships between religions over time brings us to um, perhaps the issue of interfaith, which is really quite prevalent at the moment. Looking back in Islamic history, as uh, I have done, of course, the classic case of interfaith engagement is really very interesting, that of Muslim Spain traditionally known as the land of the three religions. And in early medieval times, traditionally um, in, in, in one Spanish city after another, for example, Cordoba and Seville, Jews and Christians had their own quarters in a predominantly Muslim society. They even had a degree of self-government as well as freedom of worship. 
All they were required to do was to pay a special tax. Medieval Christian Europe offered nothing of comparable generosity, or as far as I know, to so-called infidels. So what can we learn, as we said in the um, question that was given to us by, by, by Dermot, what can we learn from this kind of practical kind of tolerance when significant and growing Muslim minorities are extending their reach now in Europe, South Asians in the UK, North Africans in France, Turks in Germany, Indonesians in Holland. No longer are Muslims, in inverted commas, over there. They're now right here, enjoying the regal requirement to be treated as equal citizens. So I'd like to draw some comfort from the example of nations that have experimented boldly and sometimes successfully with creating frameworks for groups of differing religious persuasions to live together relatively in peace. Lebanon, for example, has a system where political power and government posts are shared equally between Christians and Muslims. And on a much larger scale, India is an ongoing experiment in the coexistence of multi, multiple faiths. Several African countries, such as Ethiopia and Nigeria, have had to forge social structures that permit similar coexistence between Muslims and Christians. And this kind of activity, this um, strange and, and interesting uh, interactive aspect between the religions mm. is, is something which one can um, go right back to and learn from. The three monotheistic faiths are very much more together and similar to each other than many people in one of those three to, to understand properly. Anyone like to take that further? Well, I was just thinking that, I mean, again, returning to the the task of the historian, we have to obviously uh, try not to uh, idealise uh, the past, uh, but we are drawn to particular times, you know, Cordoba or the Mughal court under uh, Akbar and so forth, where we do look at political settlements, which, however briefly and for whatever fragile period of time, uh, held together the coexistence of a diversity of traditions and peoples. And I think even the most specific, most focused study of a particular figure, of a particular movement, of a particular city, calls upon historians to never flinch from saying, look, actually, the place of religion in the world and in humanity's history is messy. And that messiness is an irreducible plurality of coexistence. But today, it's, it's, it's a moral task of historians, and I don't care if I sound pious about it, to keep confronting politicians, media, people from within the traditions, people from outside the traditions, old people, students, to say, you know, Religion's place in history is messy, and that's something that is of immense importance to us today. It seems to me that our conversation is moving to a very important conclusion, which is uh, that all four of us uh, within this podcast would be extremely unpopular and in extreme physical danger 
in many circumstances in the world. I mean, Peter and I, for instance, as historians of Christianity, would be very unwelcome uh, in Putin's Russia. We'd also be very unwelcome in Christian nationalist circles in the United States. Uh, what, what do we make of this thought? Uh, we are dangerous people, and we are people in danger as historians of religion. Well, I've had one or two cross emails, but that's that's about as far I think as sort of my you know my personal <laughs> endangerment has ha, has gone. Y- yes, I'd 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 like to 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 think so. Um, gosh, I mean, this does sound pompous, doesn't it? But you know, speaking truth to to power, perhaps historians um, can sometimes uh, d- do that. Um, or, or to put it another way, uh, I mean, we, we we live in a, an age which famously is disparaging experts of of, of all kinds, and you know, um, one of the things that, that has always seemed to me rather wonderful about history um, is that it doesn't entirely belong to the experts, um, and its language and its concepts and its methods are explicable, um, and you know, can be practiced by a very wide range of, of people. But nonetheless. You know, historical experts have a role to play, and you know, history is is too important <laughs> to be to be left to people who who have an agenda, um, and um, you know, sometimes have to be to be to be challenged on the facts and and the interpretations. And I think you know where we have this you know potentially very explosive um, interaction of religion and identity and nationalism and and power. You know, that's a particularly important task. So I'm going to drag this back slightly to the Reformation again in, in an attempt to find some sort of, you know, good news um, from, from, from that angle. But, I mean, the Reformation, of course, is this um, zero-sum game. It's this clash of fundamentals. You know, it's absolute. There is a right way and there is a wrong way to worship God. Um, and it involves both, you know, legalised and informal forms of persecution and violence almost everywhere. And yet, and yet... In the end, neither side could win. And out of it, um, through the wonderful law of unintended consequences, um, in, in Western Europe at least, did emerge forms of religious pluralism, which did not immediately lead to secularization or the marginalization of, of, of religious faith. And, you know, local accommodations of having to live alongside people and sometimes indeed intermarry with them um, who had different notions about, about truth and faith and, and, and practice just about everywhere on different timescales that that happened. Um, to give a very sort of you know parochial example of of this, um, you know, Roman Catholics in in, in Britain um, who uh, are, are doing something entirely illegal in the 16th century and can be persecuted for it, um, and who face various forms of legal uh, and social persecution um, up to let's say you know the early 19th century, um, have now more or less sometimes it's uncomfortable but found their place. Um, within British society and even with the sort of establishment levels of British society. Uh, and of course, every particular case is, is different. Um, but it, it may be that in, in Britain, at least the way that the cr- Christian traditions have, with great difficulty, uh, learned to live alongside each other, you know, suggests how interfaith relations may develop in the coming decades. Last thoughts from uh, either Carol or Ram. I mean, history reminds us, and we need reminding, that the world wasn't always secular in its outlook and inspiration and daily life as it now is in the West. And um, certainly um, 
history also reminds us of the excesses that have all too often been associated with religious fanaticism. And it's horribly alive today, grabbing today's headlines in Afghanistan, for example, and in Yemen, and being ever aware of the past and, and the wonderful um, attitudes that have sometimes been um, apparent in, in um, interfaith um, uh, negotiations and so on. To, it'll help us to guard against repeating the mistakes of our ancestors if we use some of our historical knowledge to, to uh, help us. Ram? I just wanted to say uh, I've had Muslim scholars of my generation or younger uh, speak about the continuing impact of Carol's work. There is an important sense in which, and I feel that with Hinduism too, some of the best work gets done precisely when belonging and not belonging. Pluralism and speaking for oneself, speaking for others, objectivity, uh, looking back at the past uh, with distance, looking back at the past with passion, all of these things work together. And I think it is the resistance to tearing apart who is inside and who is outside, who looks at the past from within and who looks at it from about outside, who looks at it objectively or clinically, who thinks of it as a, a passionate statement of their own existential conviction. If they're held together, we have, in a way, a, a, a good historical culture. When they when they're torn apart and become challenges to each other's ways of looking, then that's when we are in trouble. Well, listeners, uh, you now know what historians of religion do. We keep you sane. Uh, and actually, we also enjoy it. And this has been such an enjoyable conversation. I'm so grateful to Ram and Carol and Peter for joining us today. Uh, and I hope that you too have enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. Mm -hmm.